Hey writers, one special announcement before we get to the interview. Valerie Vogren will be giving a reading this Thursday, February 27th, at 4.30 p.m. in the Cougar Bookstore here at SIUE. Professor Vogren will be reading from her new book, The Things We'll Need for the Coming Difficulties. The event is free, and copies of the new collection will be available for purchase. See you there! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Writers in the World. With me today is the author of the poetry collection, I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood, and the chapbook, Equilibrium, Tiana Clark. Professor Clark's work has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry Magazine, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. She teaches creative writing at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Tiana, welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Grant. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm excited for all of our guests, but this one's especially nice just uh, having known you for, for a little while now and, and getting to know your work. And so it's, yeah, it's much appreciated that you are taking time to, to speak with me. So yeah, we can get started. My first question is actually about an interview you did back in November with ta Coates. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about how that event went, went for you, um, even like the preparation or anything you'd like to sort of mention uh, as part of that experience. I, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. Um, so in Nashville, Tennessee, they have a series called Salon 615 where they bring in um, big authors. And the idea is that um, Parnassus Books, which is Ann Patchett's bookstore, um, provides the books and everyone kind of gets the book that night and there's a big interview with the author. Um, and so I was contacted by Parnassus and they said, um, they didn't actually they didn't ask me, but they're like, we put your name on a list of potential people to interview Tomahasi Coates and his team came wow. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was incredibly flattered. Um, and it's just something that you don't say no to. I mean, I was incredibly busy at the time. But I said, you know what? When Tanahasi picks you to interview him, you say yes. Um, yeah. So it was for his first uh, debut novel, The Water Dancer. Um, and I was incredibly excited, but I was also incredibly nervous and scared because he's just one of my personal heroes. I love Between the World and Me. And I love a lot of his essays that are on the Atlantic. And um I was nervous to kind of interview someone of his stature. Also, it was going to be at this huge event in Nashville, Tennessee, um, the Tennessee Book Center. Um, there was 700 people that night. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, there was a lot of big stakes, but, um, you know, I love research and, I, and, and it was an opportunity to kind of invite a writer that I love. So I just spent a lot of time looking. And one thing that really uh, comforted me is that he's so laid back in his interviews he's not a pretentious person at all um he's incredibly generous and warm so I felt comfortable going in knowing that um he would be kind of approachable um and mm. wouldn't be as opaque um and I read read the book and we really enjoyed the novel and uh I have an African-American history background so there were so many themes uh in the book that I wanted to kind of tease out and talk to him about it was a little bit difficult because I couldn't ask really detailed questions about the novel because everyone was reading the book that night so mm. I spoiled the plot so it's kind of hard to interview someone about a book that everyone hasn't read yet yeah um, I imagine yeah, so I got the book early so um, I had to kind of 
ask things circumspectly. Um, but we just had this magical conversation. And, um, you know, one of the things that I started with at Monticello, and he said that when he was there, he just felt like the ground vibrating. And he felt like the stories of the slaves that were there, and he wanted to bring textures and humanity um, back to that kind of past. And um, I asked him, like, what, you know, what did it mean to be in that soil to look at those artifacts? Like, you know, what was vibrating for you? And he was like, that's a good thing. Which made me feel really great. I'm mm. like, here we're off to start. Um, and our, we just talked about so many things. We talked about, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson. We talked about his influence, uh, rap influencing his lyricism, uh, which I don't mm. um, and, you know, we talked about poetry, we talked about Kanye West, we talked, I mean, we covered the mm. game and it really went in all different directions. And so it was, it was one of probably a, a, a highlight moment for me as another writer, just to kind of repartee and banter and dig deep with another kind of mind. Um, and I probably prepared probably six pages of notes and I asked wow. Questions. So it was really great, though. Is, um, and one thing that I got advice before I went to interview is they're like, don't be married to your questions. You know, like, let's interview kind of flow and develop and don't look at it kind of as this contract. And what was great is that since I had prepared so much, he would bring up something in the answer and I was able to kind of volume, like, oh, I already have that question ready to go. And I, I honestly rarely even looked at my notes because um, I wanted to be in the moment with him and have this kind of organic, pure conversation. But since I had prepared so much, I, I knew what a lot of my questions were circling around so I was able to kind of kind of weave and dance with him in the, in the moment but um um yeah I think a surprise for me in the interview was an audience the audience got to ask questions and someone asked him you know he's been compared a lot to James Baldwin and how did he see himself different from Baldwin and he said you know I think Baldwin really believed in the church's idea of redemption and reconciliation he was like and I don't hear the audience kind of gasped wow. yeah. I wonder if you wish any of the like, I know you said you sort of had to circumnavigate some of the, some of the happenings in the book. So to not, to not, so as to not spoil it maybe for the audience and maybe this didn't come from something like that, but do you wish there was a topic or a, a moment in that conversation that you wish you could have lingered a little bit longer or, or do you feel like because it was so natural and free, free flowing, you, you were able to sort of cover uh, everything you wanted to. Yeah, kind of both. I mean, it was, it, it, the hour went by really fast, but, um, there's one character in his book, The Water Dancers, that I really, really wanted to discuss, and it's this white abolitionist woman character who's really fraught, actually. And she reminded me of a lot of well-meaning white women that would kind of consider themselves woke in our day and age with our vernacular. Um, but I really wanted to ask a question about her. And I kind of did a little bit, but he couldn't really get into it without spoiling anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and I won't spoil it on the podcast in case people are in the middle of the book or want to read the book. But that was a character that I really wanted to dig deep. And I wish there was kind of like a before and after, like we had the before interview and then like after, like six months later, he comes back and we're able to kind of dig in the book. I think that'd be really cool. Um, yeah, I was really wanting to, character kind of irked me, which I think is a successful part of a novel. The character kind of gets into your skin. And, uh, he was a really problematic character. Um, mm. uh, looked at abolition from her her motives, her her goals, more than the, what freedom was to the slaves. And so, um, I thought it was a really interesting character that I really wanted to kind of get some more insight from, but there was just no way he could answer the question yeah. without spoiling the surprise in, in, in the book. So that's some, that's the only thing I wish I could have, we could have learned about that, that character. All right. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, that just speaks to, I'm sure just the, 
the depth of that character and obviously, you know, to a very talented writer and, and another talented writer picking up on yeah, just elements of, of character. Um, and yeah, I hope you get that follow-up. I, that would be great. Um, that'd be really interesting. Um, the main character is X. So I wanted to talk to him too about kind of debunking the idea of the tragic mulatto. We talked a little bit actually uh, on the side stage afterwards and, he said that he was really conscious of that and wanting to, you know, be careful not to kind of repeat things that have happened before. So that was yeah. Fun. Oh yeah. No, that sounds like that sounded like it was an amazing event, and that was seven hundred people. Um, yeah, that's uh, that'd be more of a it's more of a show, right, than an interviewee, but more of a production. Yeah. Um, just having that audience there. So that's no, that's great. Um, something both you and Coates have, have written about is enduring success and sort of navigating the world as a rising artist. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this just because, you know, as you continue to publish and are, are recognized more and more um, for your accomplishments, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how does a writer like you um, navigate success? I mean, as you've sort of progressed, does your approach change or, or your process or anything in particular? That was one question I actually didn't have a, I have a chance to really go in depth with uh, Coates and in his um, essay about Kanye, he talks about that, about, you know, when his book, The Kingdom of the Made, was so popular, he felt really isolated and that a lot of his heroes like Cornel West kind of turned their back against him. Mm. Um, he talks about how, him being at a restaurant and, having to be careful what he's saying because people are overhearing his conversation with his wife and then it would be like in a blog the next week. Or wow. how his um, house went from the address of, of his house in New York and they had to like move, or they were looking for houses and um, they were interested in one and then it got published, you know. Um, so he was kind of talking about the ways that he felt like his private, privacy has been kind of um, infiltrated. Obviously, Mahasi Coach is a, a way different level than I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had a very successful career up until this point, and I'm, it's, uh, I've been very blessed and fortunate for all of the opportunities that have um, come my way. But I think one thing that we don't allow room is to talk about success, the success, because when you're, <clears throat> you know, if you're an artist, can we, are we allowed to cuss? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you don't want to seem like an asshole. Yeah. yeah. Um, complain right um but i think also as a as a woman of color um there has to be room to talk about the ways to advocate for yourself you know and right um a writer that i really love gabrielle cavacaresi i was talking to them about some of the things that i was struggling with and they said something that really stayed with me and they said that sometimes as an emerging writer you feel like you should be so grateful for everything that you're not allowed to ask for anything mm. Sometimes hard. Um, so I think for me, some of those stresses look like. I mean, I ended up in PR on my first book tour because I wasn't taking care of myself, and I had over overbooked myself, worked myself, and um, you know, you just you don't take into consideration like delays and traveling stress that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Also, my year of um, first time uh, full time teaching on top of a book yeah. where I was basically traveling sometimes. Um, every week and sometimes twice a week, you know, to different uh, universities, all which is wonderful and great, you know, that people want me to come out and read my book and I'm 
we need to do this and it's amazing and uh, but at the same time you know my body is just breaking down uh, from all the responsibilities yeah. and it's hard to say no um, you, you know um, especially if you grew up poor you know you can have a scarcity mentality of like well I don't know when these opportunities are going to run out so I feel like I have to connect everything you know yeah um, and especially when there's money involved like you want to especially if you grow up and laugh you want to have you feel like you have to kind of travel up these opportunities but um you know, opportunity cost of all of that and that's your body and so um yeah after I ended up in the ER from like immigration and I, I actually had um GI um I was like I have to do something to take care of myself um and I have to say no and unfortunately I think I've I've gotten better about communicating my needs and um I can't do every I unfortunately can't do every school that reaches out to me I want to um but um you know for me my students have to come first and after that like I really have to look at my schedule and I can only really do maybe like one or two gigs a month Mm -hmm. I try a little more right um but it's hard to navigate all that because those are like exciting mm-hmm. things that happen, right? Like, you want to be free. You're, you're not a machine. And also, like, I still want to keep writing, and that's really right. hard too. So yeah. After, after I go give a reading or do a workshop and then have some a little bit of energy left to face my imagination, those are all really, really hard to toggle and um, manage. And especially poet versus being a fiction writer or non fiction writer, which I'm starting to dabble in non fiction. Um, you're, you're your own publicist, your own administrative assistant, you mm. do everything on your own. And so um, your own speaking agent, yeah. your paperwork, you're, you're doing, you don't have like a team helping you with all that stuff. Right. Um, so it can, it can be overwhelming. And I think, you know, burnout is a big popular buzzy word right now. But um, I think that's especially for creative artists that um, burnout can be very susceptible to kind of yeah and i feel like that makes that makes a lot of sense but it's one of those things where yeah there's like this natural sort of cycle that gets established because i mean i'd imagine i can't imagine the amount of work you put in to get to like where you are and it and it has to have been just a just a ton and so you know as you're putting in all that work i'm sure you're thinking you know your your mentality changes about work and, and even about sec- success sort of in the moment and then yeah i'm sure it's it is easy to forget uh self-care or um you know some of those other items that you mentioned that if you if you're not sort of taking care of that then you're you're not sort of approaching the work um or you're not fully present maybe at all these events that you're running around to and so yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you tell that line. It's got to be hard. Yeah, I mean, I think listening to your body is a great indicator um, of when you're stressed out. And now I do a better job of advocating for myself with my schedule and what I need. Um, but a lot of these opportunities that come your way, sometimes you got to jump on them. I mean, an example mm-hmm. is when I wrote my burnout piece, that was in response to Anne Helen Peterson's essay on BuzzFeed. I just happened to have a Twitter thread about it, responding to her article saying that, you know, I didn't really see a POC perspective. Mm. You know, Anne Helen Peterson retweets my thread. It goes viral. BuzzFeed reaches out to me and was like, hey, do you want to expand this into an essay? And I'm like, sure, that's great. So how much time are you going to give me? And they're like, two days. Wow. That, like, what? You wrote like, that in two days? Okay, and it's like you want to say yes because it's like it's an incredible opportunity. But I, I mean, I literally was burnt out writing this burnout essay. I mean, I looked like a runaway slave at that. Wow. 
but I, luckily I have a team of wonderful friends and um, that helped me edit and but I mean that just shows you sometimes just like how fast freelance writing you know um, a lot of these things very very quickly um, and with freelance writers you have to be very quick I mean but versus you know I just wrote an essay about Emily Dickinson and the new Dickinson show mm-hmm. on Apple TV not that you know she was very flexible with me and that I wrote that slowly over six weeks you know so it's not always like that um so I try to be very honest about my time with publications and when I can and can't do something and I'll try I'll try my best but you know I think I did ask BuzzFeed for one more day so I think I did write it in three days to be fair but still it was very it was um that was the fastest essay though yeah that's still amazing I, I spent time with um the publications that you that you sort of link in on your website, which is just a fantastic website, and I will definitely include it in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I mean, like some of your essays, there's there's lines and a few of them even end just poetically. I mean, there's there's just some, it's just really great writing. And yeah, the fact that you turned that out in, in two maybe three days is uh, is saying something. I mean, it kind of I don't know if that speaks to deadlines as. Um, as a good thing per se, just because I'm sure that induced a lot of stress, but uh something happens like the squid happens, magical things can happen, but you also just can't operate being like pressed down all the time. You know, you're mm-hmm. um so it's one of those things as a writer, there's definitely been some deadlines that have pushed me to write some really great, interesting things that I've been proud of. Um but I but I'm trying as a as a writer to um develop the habit of you know the long haul and you know you being a short story writer and you know a fiction writer novelist I mean the, the longer route is I'm interested to see given some time what I could do with that you know yeah yeah you're right like it is it is a life like the body of work you hope you know lasts a lifetime or at least I feel like I feel that way like I want to be sort of constantly getting better or constantly sort of being introspective or what have you so I think yeah I mean that that goes out the window if you sort of yeah, burn yourself out um in in your 20s and 30s so um yeah that's all that's all really good really good advice even to even for our listeners um I'm not sure if I gave your advice but I think just um listening to your body advocating for yourself and you know setting your honorarium at a price at a at a level that you you know um yeah and unfortunately now I can only really do things that really meet my honorarium and I, and I can't do much that if it doesn't, you know, just, I'm just so crunched. And of course I still offer my time for um, things that I really believe in or nonprofit things or endeavors, you know, that uh, I get behind. You know, I, I do save some of my time for those as well. Um, it's important to me, you know, and some yeah. of the organizations don't have the budget to do some of the stuff, you know, that's why I do a lot right. of town in Nashville. I help some literary nonprofits and things like that. Because if I'm in town, I take a lot of travel. Like I don't mind giving, you know, volunteering some of my time to help those out. You know. Yeah, I mean, like what you're doing right now. <laughs> That's just very generous, and um, it is, like I said at the start of the show, just um, it is appreciated. Yeah, support my school. Gotta support you. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. Um, I did want to ask about your two books. Yeah. Um, Equilibrium, which which I've read and and loved, and I can't talk about the trees without the blood, which I I haven't read uh, cover to cover, but a number of the pieces in there, um, and I just wanted I always sort of ask guests 
um, to sort of think back maybe to how one work manifested compared to another, which is really maybe unfair question or difficult question to answer or, or even articulate. Um, but I, I know time obviously separated these two uh, collections and length. Um, but I was wondering if there's, did anything else just feel different in the crafting of these two, these two books? No, so equilibrium, equilibrium, um, you know, was my first chap book. And for those of you that know, a chap book is kind of analogous to like a novella, mm-hmm. um, a, you know, a smaller collection of poems um, that doesn't really count as your first book. It's kind of like an amuse bouche or like an introduction to you as a writer, usually anywhere 15 to 20 poems. Um, and I remember that I, um, when I started my MFA at Vanderbilt, competitions coming up and a friend of mine had had, had won uh the bull city press chapbook competition and when i saw his book i really liked it and i really thought it was a, you know a beautiful book. and i asked my husband, I, I knew that i wasn't at that moment ready for the big book for the big collection but i knew that i had at least you know 15 20 poems that i felt like from conversation and i honestly kind of challenged myself to start thinking of the chapbook as a way to kind of help me towards my thesis during the time mm. But so really, like most things, it was just a way, it was kind of like practice, you know, um, a, a practice and process. And so um, I remember Charles Baxter, the poet and novelist, was at Vanderbilt, and I went to his craft talk, and I asked him, um, you know, I'm, I'm putting together this chapbook, and I'm having trouble with the order. Um, you know, can you help me kind of figure out how do we sequence things? And he said something that really was an aha moment for me, and he said, I think a good book, whether that's a short story collection, a novel, or a you know, a suite of poems starts with a question that's often unanswerable, but through, you know, the narrative of the protagonist, through the link in the short stories, you know, through the uh, the link in the poem, wrestling with that unanswerable question that kind of propels the sequence and, and mm. story forward. And that kind of was like an aha moment for me because, you know, what happens when we stop trying to become the other? Mm. Um, and that, once he said that, the collection kind of clicked into place. It said, I'll start with equilibrium. That's the question that's hovering at the scene of all these poems. That's the question that the speaker is facing, um, dealing with identity and um, dealing with kind of mixed race and religion and race. Um, and so it was a really important exercise for me of how to, you know, thinking about the macro level concerns. So often in these MFA programs, you're, you're in the micro, right. right? You're like looking at your, you're looking at your, you're looking at your stories, looking at your poems individually. But the other part, we don't think really globally of the book, mm-hmm. right? The big capital B. And so I, working on the process helped me to start thinking about like, how are my poems in conversation? Um, you know, what is the, you know, if there's 19, there's 14, let's say 14 poems in my chat book, the 15 poem is the whole chat book, you know, what's, what's the beginning, what's the turn, and what's that resolution towards the end? Mm. Um, and so when it came time for my big book, I can't talk about the truth of the blood, I broke it. It's kind of a triptych title that breaks down into the three sections of the book. And what I did was I just worked on three chapbooks because I was like, well, I've already done the chapbook before. And I, I knew how to do that. And I, I basically broke down the three sections as if I was writing three mini chapbooks. And so when you asked me, like, you know, what linked them to me, the equilibrium that was that for me was the training world that helped me the scaffolding to understand how my book, my big book was working because Sometimes we think about the huge novel or the, or the big collection, it's a little so overwhelming, but I'd already chunked it down into this bite-sized thing that I could handle. 
with the chaplet. And so knowing how to work on those movements for each of those acts and, and the big books. So um, also, I was happy that the chaplet kind of contained some of my early writing that I probably wouldn't have brought over into the book. I think there's like mm. two or three poems in the chapbook that are in um, my full collection. I'm really happy that, I mean, my, ended up for me, my chapbook really feels a little bit like my first book, um, like my, my first utterance, you know? Um, yeah. And I was able to get some of those things out and that time and able to kind of work on some other concerns that I had. Um, but I did add a new poem, this kind of wild walk of poem uh, and equilibrium that my hat towards what I, what I was moving to next. And I would try to do that each of my books. Even in I Can't Talk About the Tears of the Blood, um, there's a poem in their ritual that could be my working on next. I like to kind of leave a little breadcrumb, a little a little moment that's like, hey, this is, this is where we're going next. So I like using that in my book. For me, it's a little nudge of like, that kind of sends me off into the next direction. Like each book teaches me how to write it and then it's starting to lead me to the next thing. And it feels like a little bit of like, all right, you're done here. You know, I've had dinner. I've spent the night. I've worn out my wall. Yeah. They, they send me on their way with a care pack. That's just such a wonderful way to, of thinking about it, though. And, and almost like, I, I don't know, what a, what a moment with Charles Baxter, too. Um, yeah, a writer who I am very much impressed with as well. And just thinking about, I don't know, that it... it it oddly reminds me of like essay writing too, or more like theoretical writing where, yeah, you're, you don't have all the answers per se. And I, I feel like as a writer, you know, me writer, like I feel like sometimes when I set out to write a short story, I think I need to know, you know, beginning, middle and end when really it, it might just be this exploration of a larger question. Um, like you said, it's like unanswerable question that you're sort of just working through not necessarily providing an answer for. Yeah, I come up this all the time. Um, and it's also sometimes boring and not as interesting as, as the story wrestle with it, right? Because some of these, these larger things that we're exploring, like grief and loss and pain and sex and death, there are no answers to these things. Right. It's how we struggle with them, how we with them, how we get closer to understanding them, but they're so elusive to us that we're just kind of Grasping and, and grasping at the end of these things that we're never really going to fully grasp. We might get really close to it. Um, but how we get precise about these untranslatable emotions. It's, it's mm, yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's all really good. And I, I also just appreciated sort of hearing you talk about the chat book competition and how, how having that going on sort of simultaneously with, with the thesis and working towards that, how that sort of provided like a way in maybe, or just sort of like, like you said, scaffolding our frame um, for your work. And I just, uh, yeah, I mean that, that moment or the aha moment, or just like you said, when things clicked, just, yeah, that had to feel good. <laughs> and so I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad that that's, that's continued to happen for you and that, yeah, writing yourself sort of to this next, I don't know, area of, of, uh, preoccupation that's probably not the right word but like you said sort of in, in that first collection how uh, there's that poem in there that sort of is a nudge to to where you were headed I guess as far as like maybe form goes or, or content um so speaking of that um throughout equilibrium and in your in your second book I can't talk without the trees without the blood readers of your poetry are, are often greeted with this innovative and unique form um, you write triptychs, but you also 
produce poems that are shaped unlike any others I've seen. Can, they can be read in a number of ways, left to right, top to bottom, um, probably even more ways than that. Um, what interests you most about form and its possibilities? I'm, I'm just curious when, when you craft a poem, and maybe this is, uh, this is definitely a two-part question, but uh, when you craft a poem, do you ever find that a form appears before you, you have these words and lines in mind? Um, or is that never the case? The form or the egg, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I'm really interested in kind of uh, making a breaking form, kind of a form, form. I think every writer has to examine, or every poet, I should say, um, examine and define their relationship to mind. I want my reader's eyes to, to um, always be moving, like every poem is being different. Um, mm. So, my husband is a really deep poet, you know, I really got a sense of language and music from him. So it was in graduate school where I worked with Mark Charman, who is a wonderful poet, and he's also a formalist. So I was really confronted for the first time with like this kind of derelict style that I had being pushed into these kind of straight jackets of form. And I was honestly very terrified. I, I had this very abject relationship to form that I, I, I think I was very scared of it because I thought I tried to sign it and I couldn't do it and I failed. I wouldn't be a real writer. Um, but what I found out is that my imagination actually flourished kind of in the confines of form, but back, back against the breaking of that. And that breaking form, making and breaking these forms was actually miming some of the content that I was doing. So in equilibrium, you know, I have a broken puzzle for a lost of Scott. So I remember mm. writing the puzzle, uh, which is a broken form that has a lot of repetition and a lot of rules. And I was really stuck in the poem. And I remember Ross Gay was like, why don't you just break it? And I was like, wait, what? You're allowed to do that? And he's like, yeah, if it's not working, just break it. And he said it's so cavalier, but it was such a powerful moment that mm. I, I gave myself permission to do this this thing. And <coughs> excuse me, breaking the form actually led to kind of mirroring the concept of the broken black body under police brutality. Mm. Uh, so there's ways that the aesthetics can kind of have this mimetic technique that adds another layer of depth and tension and surprise in the poem. Um, that mm -hmm. I'm exploring. And so, um, but in the first drafts, I often don't think about form. In that first draft, um, Terrence Hayes Terrence Hay says, it's a feminist shadow. So for me, I'm just exercising my demons and everything out on the page. It's a really playful part in the process where I'm not really thinking about audience and not thinking about the editor out. It's a very messy, just mm -hmm. sense of kind of sprawl. And then, you know, when I go back, and I have my editor brain, that's when those issues of form kind of come into play. And TM playing, I'll throw it in couplets, I'll throw it in quatrains, I'll be like, let me play with winding lines, let me play with Sejura and put some visual space in the poem. Let me kind of, <clears throat> and then what happens when I'm playing with these different containers and poetry, the poem starts revealing itself to me. It starts making itself, you know, if I can have my ego get out of the way, the poem starts informing me what it wants to do and what it wants to be. Um, but it's all in that experimentation and in play where I'm just kind of trying out these different kind of suits on it and kind of like tailoring and, and, and my poem just starts kind of coalescing in a way that feels part intuitive, but also part levels of craft mm -hmm. that I'm doing that are kind of merging together. And in and, and, and that um, uh, confluence, like the poem, the poem comes into being. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, that's just well put. And yeah, I, I did want to bring up the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. You were on that show um, some time ago. 
And so this, this is related to theme. Um, so maybe it makes sense to go here now. Uh, and you sort of discuss the commodification of African-American culture uh, on that show as part of a reading you did and, and a discussion. Um, and you sort of talk about that commodification through food, whether it be, you know, the, the $20 uh, hot chicken and waffles dish, or um, I believe when you were on that show, you were talking about um, some severely overpriced catfish. And uh, I just wonder if you, if you sort of deal with that tension just as artists um, thinking about your own work and whether or not you're, you're thinking about, you know, audience or a white audience, or if you're somehow, um, I don't know, not necessarily part of the commodification, but just that uh, you're, you're trapped in it or, or something like that. I mean, can you speak to, do you ever think about that uh, just in crafting your own work? Um, yeah, similar to the form question. And that first draft, I don't, no one's really in the room with me but me. And I've often said mm. before, I, a, lot, a lot of writers talk about audience, but for me, I'm writing to save my own life first. Mm. Like, uh, that might be very selfish, but I mean it in, in terms of survival. Like, I look at poetry, and especially Black poetry, thinking of persistence in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lineage of survival. I think about the poem from Lucille Lus Clifton, um, and uh, what you can celebrate with me, that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed, you know? And wow. for me, I'm, I'm writing in that celebration of my survival that I should be dead. You know, but there are so many systematic forces um, that are me, but I'm pushing back against that in my work. Um, and so when I have the pen in my hand or my fingertips on, on the keyboard on my laptop, you know, I'm not really thinking about a white or black audience. And the truth is, you know, I'm mixed. So that's already tangled and woven. Yeah. That, that, that um, it's in my DNA. So it's inex mm -hmm. inextricably linked to me always. Uh, it's not totally separate room, right? Um, I, I hate it when writers talk about like they're like this, you know, um, you know, third-party observant that's like unattached and blank from any culture. I think that's bullshit. Um, um, yeah. But what I mean to say is that I am. I write from a very personal landscape, hoping, in a, hoping to capture a type of emotional truth that mm. one will will save myself and hopefully save other people but i don't depend on that other um right. of literature to feel less alone in the world and so it always means so much to me when people tell me that you know my work they relate to my work. but i think that's something that was honestly taught to me by my teacher um who again was just in the deep movement but you know always try to be extremely specific and personal the personal that connects us to the universal not the other way around so mm. Um, in that vein, I, I write from a very intense, specific way, uh, and that has always, that's always just, that hasn't ever let me down in that way, you know? Yeah. I don't know if it answers your question, but it's pretty No, it, it, def it most definitely does. Um, and it, it kind of leads into, into this, this sort of last question that I have for you, really, um, and it is sort of a step back, but it, it kind of deals with audience, but it, it that may be more so with you just as a, as a teacher of creative writing and sort of overseeing, you know, new, maybe some newer writers or younger writers, people that just are still maybe uh, fresh when it comes to the form. And I don't know, like, I, I'm just interested in what and how you might respond to this, but 
in, a, in an essay for the Adroit Journal, um, you discussed how when you brought a version of your poem BBHMM to workshop, um, it was met with, a, with some skepticism, some criticism. Some of the other members of the workshop uh, were sort of discouraging you to maybe try to seek publication for it or to keep working on it. And there were maybe some comments made about Rihanna, which was the source of inspiration for the poem. And, and so I'm just wondering, like, and, and maybe you would answer this differently in your first year in an MFA program than you would in your last, but how do you view the workshop experience? And of course it's different um, anywhere you go, but so maybe this question is really more of a, in, in a broader sense, but uh, like the role of, of literary criticism, um, I don't know, just writing for, maybe that's, maybe that's not a good way to articulate the question, but I'm just sort of thinking, it, it kind of relates back to audience. And I'm just sort of wondering, well, I don't know, what, you, what do you think about writing for sort of that type of an audience, maybe like a contained group and yeah. where there is sort of this expectation around, you know, feedback or yeah, anything that yeah, you'd I, like to discuss. I let my kids talk during the workshop. I don't, the person who's being also doesn't have to remain silent. You know, um, there's a book and I always, I didn't find a childless book, but it actually goes into the history of the MFA workshops in Iowa, um, the Iowa workshop and how basically it was kind of like started a little bit with influence of CIA. Mm. Um, and part of the workshop idea was honestly off of, off of interrogation where there's a subject that sits there and remains silent and it's being interrogated, right? Um, right. And so that, that's already incredibly fraught. I think that's the thing about the students, especially as a person of color, um, when you have your work up for workshop and you are silenced in that space, but people are discussing your work, that might, that might be enacting another type of violence on your work. That's incredibly problematic. Mm. Um, However, for me, um, well, to that point also, sometimes workshop can be good. I don't know if that's the best idea to go into workshop. It's often it's, it's good towards the question of what's wrong with this. Often Instead of asking, mm-hmm. what's working here? You know, like what's, and, and what is the goal of the author? It doesn't matter what my goal is or what I like or don't like. What's the goal of the author and how can we make that goal work? You know? Right. It's the framing around workshop that I think is really important to me that I'm interested in kind of uh, revamping and, and radicalizing. And so for me, what happened with my poem, uh, it was a wild poem. It was, I was mixing Rihanna with the acrostic process, this ancient process, like back to the in the Grecian urn. I was intentionally trying to shake things up and shake the canon up. I was trying to take some risks. And sometimes the workshop can kind of sanitize risks. Um, right. They can kind of sanitize things that are kind of messy and wonky in our work. But those are the things that tell my students things that are kind of messy and unbridled. Those are the surprising, exciting, probable things in the reading of text. Who wants to read a text that's right. predictable? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I think yeah, no. um, the workshop is not best at handling experimental, um, risk-taking um, adventures in that way. And so, honestly, for me, what I did, though, when I didn't have a piece that went well in workshop, it was actually a sign to me that I was doing something right. I mm. was being bogged down and saying, oh, they hated it, I'm gonna change everything. I was like, oh, I'm actively pushing against their critique. And their critique is actually helping to shape what I'm pushing against and helping me to promote what I'm actually trying to do. Oh, this is making you uncomfortable? Yeah, I want it to make you uncomfortable. You know? I, yeah. You know, the workshop is a voice, it's not the voice. 
okay? It's a voice or not the voice. But at the end of the day, you have to trust your own information. I'll give you a quick short story. Um, my very first workshop, I was so excited. I want. I volunteered to go first. I put in this poem that was again taken out of the book. Um, everyone hated it. Everyone took a big. Everyone took their pants down. Took a big crap on it. Um, I took all of their notes, and I was home. I was taking every single editing suggestion. I was during this time. I was getting a phone call, my phone, and I wasn't answering it. So I was just like way too lost in revision, and I didn't know the number. And during her, I get this email. It's kind of I'm trying to get in touch with you. You just won the Rattle Poetry Prize for one poem uh, for $10,000. It was the exact poem that I was working on. Wow. And they took the edit that I had initially done in workshop. And he was like, we love the risk that you're taking this poem. We've never seen a poem like this before. Um, you know, they were praising me for the risk that I took, you yeah. know? Vindication. Instead of the workshop sanitizing and that risk. Um, and it was, it was, I, you know, one, it was incredible to win that award, and I don't fail this to see my horn, but I say this to say as an encouragement. Um, there are other yeah. that, um, again, like, you trust your own voice and imagination above anybody else. And you know the voices in workshop that you trust and that you don't trust. Amplify mm -hmm. those, uh, the others. And I tell my students this. I don't even read. When I was in workshop, I didn't, I would take everyone's notes. I wouldn't even read them for two weeks. Mm. Um, I would just give yourself that space, yeah. Facing time because some, some of this shit is too close to us, you know. And what happened though is I would think about the comments they said, and then when I was emotionally ready to read the, the comments, I knew which ones I wanted to hear, which ones I didn't. Mm -hmm. that they're wrong, like I know what I'm doing with that character, and like I don't want to hear that, but I'm, I know I'm a little shaky on the notes, notes, and address those things. But it took me that time and that distance to like get to that place where I could read it, you know, because I think all the time, I'm like. They are so hungry for validation, hungry to like read everyone else's stuff. But it's like, no, the voice that you have to sharpen and tone is your own, you know? Um, so that, yeah. I'm happy that happened earlier because it really changed my whole perspective on the MFA. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, um, and also to say that I didn't learn anything, but I definitely did. Um, but it made me realize that I was doing something risky and different and this was this was not the space um that was going to honor that this is going to be a space that was going to actually um cause some tension for me but i just translated their tension into the direction to take my work in. well wow what that is an amazing story um i'm so glad it happened not that you would have um gone in some other direction or anything like that but just that that had to just been such a satisfying feeling on a, on a number of levels um, and a deserved one. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think about that a lot just because just the, just that, just the act of, of workshop. I almost find that when I'm reading someone else's work, it's for it. I, I'm going to stand to gain, you know, from that experience more than the author of that work. Yeah. Um, and so I just, and on the, on the other side of that too, it's, you know, I'm never going to write a single word for someone else's story at the end of the day they're And I'd hate that expression, but when it comes down to it, it's, it's, they are going to be the one, you know, the writer who's going to approach the page again. And so I just, yeah, I don't know. I've, I'm, 
I think maybe workshop for me has been sort of just a process and it's sort of looked different for us at SIUE throughout other different terms, but we're using a model right now, the Liz Lerman model. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's, it's working out really well. Um, it sort of lets the uh, writer have a little bit more say and control because, you know, I feel like some, sometimes what can happen and, I'm not sure if this was ever the case for you, but the the work just the conversation get gets hijacked a little bit sometimes, or just sort of out of control, spiral in a way. And um, I don't know. It seems like people kind of be are throwing things, you know, one on top of the other, without really any regard for yeah, like what does the artist maybe want out of this? Um, yeah, and that's and one. I, and I've learned, I've heard that from a teacher. It's kind of the menu method of like you let the the writer choose how they want to be workshop. And that's kind of where I'm looking mm. towards. So here are some different options and you get to decide what works best for you, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, I did have one more sort of broader question. And um, if, if you don't have an answer for it, that's understandable. Um, and I thank you in advance, but um, I did have just one more sort of general question and it might be unanswerable, but I, I'm wondering if you see um, poetry, the big genre of poetry, do you believe that we are nearing any type of change or a new trend or a new direction in, in the art form? Um, or maybe even for your own work, if you, if you see it headed in a, in a different direction? Um, yeah, um, that's a big question. I, I think for poetry writ large, or what I'm excited about is I mean, as much as there's some nastiness with and some degradation with social media, we've seen a huge boon in poetry sales and an access to poetry mm. through Twitter and Instagram. Although I do chagrin at some Instagram poetry, but I see it as a gateway drug that yeah. are people interested in, in creative writing in a way that I haven't seen before. Um, and so I'm like, I, you know, fine, give me all the Instagram poetry if this, if this you know, piques the interest of, of younger people. And then I'm like, okay, let me show you some channels. Let me show you like, okay, look, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So I see Twitter, especially democratizing the access to literature in a way that I think is really powerful. You know, now um, certain writers have bigger Twitter followings than certain literary journals. In a way we're curating experiences for our followers mm -hmm. and in a way that, you know, you don't have to have a subscription to Kenny Review, which you should, you should if you do have the money to support it. <laughs> that honestly right. that might be an access or a access for some people. Um, yeah. So I'm excited that I do think we're kind of in this digital renaissance um, right now that is providing um, access to literature in really exciting ways. Uh, I mean, I wake up and I often start my day by just kind of reading some of the, you know, the poem of the days or, you know, a viral essay. Um, that's my morning newspaper now. And so I'm mm. really excited to see where literature goes from there. Um, my own work, um, I'm working on my second collection collection right now, and um, I'm investigating kind of links in my work. Um, and I'm really interested in long, long poems. And so, you know, I had one long poem, and I can't talk about the truth about the blood, the crime Nina Simone. Um, and that felt really amazing to write and explore. And so the second collection is really continuing in that vein. Um, but so often in the world, I feel very small. Um, and I'm trying to push back against that smallness with a kind of lyric swagger in my work. And so that's mm. where, that's where my, my poetry is headed next into, into, into longing. Yeah. Mm. As a that's, and desire and in length. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited to 
just hear how that continues to develop. And it sort of brings us a little bit full circle just in, in terms of talking about, you know, navigating this world as, as an artist, a rising, a rising poet. And um, yeah, I just, I can't thank you enough for, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, to do this. Um, I really appreciate your time and your thoughtful engagement with my work. Um, not only my poetry, but my essays um, and interviews and, uh, I really believe in you and this podcast. I think you're doing a great job and you have such a great voice for, so I think it's amazing. So. Well, yeah, if you could see me, I'm blushing a little bit because <laughs> yes, you, um, this has been something that uh, I've really been looking forward to. So I'm so glad it happened. And I, like I, I announced at the start of the show, just your website is, is worth a visit fr- from everybody. It's, it's just wonderfully curated and um, links to everything. Wonderful essays, like I said, read more at times like, like a poem and it's just beautiful, beautiful sight. So it was a joy to prepare for it. Um, and yeah, thank Thank you so much. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show. Here are two more announcements. SIUE's English Language and Literature Association is hosting a book sale today, Monday, February 24th, and tomorrow, Tuesday, February 25th, from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. in the Morris University Center. Find quality reads across genres at great prices. The second announcement has to do with our show. We'll be taking another short break to prepare episodes on our next theme, The Writer in the World. These episodes will focus on the community-based learning projects second-year MFA students have been implementing. Be on the lookout for new episodes coming in March. As always, thanks for listening.